the way in which Jesus goes about the commissioning of these of these twelve. He calls them, he gave them authority, he gives them instructions, and he gives them a very straight commands. Do not go this way, go rather, do not take. So the process of commissioning is not one of suggestion. It's not one of let's have a let's have a meeting and decide how best to go about this work. The Lord Jesus who has been doing all the work till now with the disciples watching having his example he doesn't at this point say well I'm I'm glad you're here because you've now seen and you've seen how it's all gone What, what, what do you think we should do to expand this work that actually is the way that many many things would be done today wouldn't it and say let's just have a consensus on this because you've got various talents you can bring to the piece some of you are fishermen perhaps you can tell us a bit perhaps you've got better insight into what it means to be a sort of a, a, an artisan fisherman or Matthew you're a tax collector you're going to have a particular way of getting alongside people who handle money really value your opinion on this how is, how is this message to be broadly spread? Oh, it's not like that at all, is it? Lord Jesus speaks with utter authority and he doesn't expect his disciples to come up with bright ideas but rather to do exactly what he says. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. They don't have authority, do they? The only authority that they have or ever will have comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. What a daunting thing it is for them to be facing this moment. How glad they might have been just, just, just to have sat back and to have seen the Lord Jesus continuing to do what he was doing in chapters 8 and 9. And now he's throwing them into the deep end. There isn't a dry run here. They don't role play with each other. In fact, he warns them in chapter 10 that what they're going into is going to prove extremely hard. And difficult, it will not be a smooth ride. So, how remarkable it is that he both gives authority and, and he has such confidence that they will be able to be okay in that situation. They'll be okay because the Holy Spirit of God will, will hold them up. And what a great work that they're being asked to do. Don't go to the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Wow, it's massive. It's so broad, isn't it? You kind of wonder at the strategy of it. 
we ever see at this time. We don't exactly know. But let's say he was near somewhere like Capernaum. I said, well, you, you take the east end of Capernaum. You two go there and you two go off to the west end of Capernaum and so on. But none of that seems to be spelled out in any of this here. They're just given this enormous task. And this is where they, they are required to use their thought and um, to be able to work effectively. Extraordinary confidence of Jesus in his apostles' awareness of what needed to be done and how to go about it because they'd seen him at work. And the one thing that was very evident about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was that each day and every day, in response to his prayers to his Heavenly Father, he moves exactly where, Jesus, where his Father wants him to be. He says what his Father wants him to say. And he's borne along by the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful thing to see, isn't it? So that we can say with utter confidence that the Lord Jesus was someone who understood the will of the Father and did it perfectly. He knew the promptings of the Holy Spirit so well. And I'm sure the disciples had seen this over a matter of months now and they must have been astonished as well. They're saying, yes, yeah, so he spoke to that lady then. And then this happened, and then that happened. And all these wonderful things were, they could see the connections. And they realized that the hand of God was on this. Jesus is saying to them, as as you've seen it happen in my ministry, so it is to happen in your ministry as well. It's not to be different. It has the same hallmark of, Dependence upon the Holy Spirit, his promptings and his ways. But they needed specific briefing as well. There were certain things that Jesus was very clear about at this particular time. There were, there were some do's and don'ts, there were some barriers. They were not to go to the Gentiles at this point in time. This wasn't yet the time for the Gentiles although Jesus had already dealt with Gentile people. It was by exception rather than the rule. It was by anticipation rather than the main focus of what needed to be happening at this time. And then I'm quite struck by the fact that he sends out the twelve, these are now apostles, I think it's fairly clear, it doesn't say this in this passage. We see it in the Luke passage about the 72 going out in pairs. And there seems to be a a biblical principle in ministry being undertaken in pairs rather than individually. There's wisdom in that. And it's interesting that the names of the 12 apostles are paired off in that way. So was that the case that Simon and his brother Andrew went out together? And as you go through that list, you, you think, how, how were these ones going to get along? Here's Thomas, the one we find out who is a bit doubtful and rather pessimistic, alongside Matthew, the tax collector. They hadn't known each other for very long. They weren't exactly sort of 
paired off in a social media sense. But again, the Lord Jesus perfectly knew what he was doing and the arrangement that he'd made. And just as he'd individually chosen the twelve, so he was well aware of the, of the way they needed to work together um, as a unit. So they're following orders. They're following his example. He's called them and he's instructed them and they are to be dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And there are these surprises, only Jews, not Gentiles. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, these 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. I think we can say this is this is just part of Jesus' campaign, a final wooing and winning of God's covenant people. Which had really been happening over centuries. It was now reaching an enormous climax. The one who'd been revealed through the prophets. God who'd been wooing and winning his covenant people and finding them to be very rebellious, forgetful. Look at Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 4. Isaiah, who lived 600 years before, Christ I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside he dug it up and cleared it of stones planted it with the choicest vines he built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well and he looked for a crop of good grapes it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? It's a very sad lament, isn't it? This, this picture. The almighty and perfect God has done everything necessary to cause an extremely fruitful vineyard. But perversely, there's only bad fruit. God has been repeatedly merciful, gracious, omnipotent, providing... Every opportunity has been provided for his covenant people, the one he loves so deeply. And yet, perversely, there's only bad fruit. It's a repeated theme, isn't it, throughout the Bible? A sobering reminder it is for us to recognise that the Lord Jesus Christ is looking for fruit in us. This isn't history this is also present reality
we don't bear fruit, we're cast away. It continues to be the acid test throughout the whole of the Bible. God's people are to bear fruit. The Israelites are coming to a, the Jews, they're coming to a very critical moment in their history. After the coming of the many prophets and so forth, God sends his own son looking for fruit. The son comes in the flesh. He walks amongst his own people. He came to his own, but his own received him not. And he does all the things that Messiah was predicted to do. The kingdom is here. They will never have a greater opportunity, a greater nearness to the realities of Messiah blessing and the coming of Jesus to his own people in the flesh. Touchable. So near. So close. They could hear him. They could see him. And the offer is still being made. It's his final wooing and winning of God's covenant people. It's it's very significant, isn't it, that although on the horizon there's a light for the Gentiles, Jesus' ministry here is focusing on the final wooing and winning of God's covenant people. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. And here is Jesus towards the end of his ministry on earth. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. Sent stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Great sadness, isn't there? You see the that heart of compassion is still there in the Lord Jesus. Still concerned for his people sorrowful over their unwillingness. How much does the Lord Jesus sorrow over us when we find ourselves to be unwilling, drifting from him? What an unhappy place to be. especially with the thought that Jesus' primary response to the unwillingness of his people is one of compassion, one of deep sorrow. He died on the cross for us. Why should we be unwilling? He's paid with his lifeblood. That's the most powerful motive for all of us to turning back to the Lord if we're not in that right place tonight to remember what he's done for us 
Take no provisions. That's surprising as well, isn't it? Seems rather modest or unduly restrictive. Why wouldn't you take an extra tunic? It does rain. Isn't that sensible provision? Well, I think it's more to be making a point on this particular occasion. And the Lord Jesus is reminding them that in the detail, as well as in the, in the big picture, they are to depend on God. Depending on God. In this ministry that they're about, they're to depend on God. Not just for the words to speak, not just for the understanding of where to go, but even in the detail. Sometimes depending on God in detail helps us to depend on God in the big. But also he says, for the worker is worth his keep. You notice that? It's in verse 10. For the worker is worth his keep. It was a proper expectation that Messiah's people would welcome and encourage Messiah's workers. So here's an interesting test, isn't it? that those who come as ambassadors for the Messiah should be welcomed by those who are Messiah's people. The worker is worth his keep. Hmm. The essential ingredients of the mission, firstly, the Messiah is here, exclamation mark, The Messiah is here. The kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 10, verse 7. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's near. How how near can the kingdom of heaven come? And as we've just described, the fact of the Messiah, he's come down from heaven and is in human flesh and he's there amongst you. And he's there with his words and his promises and his works. The kingdom of heaven is near. And the marks of Messiah are undertaken. They didn't just go and preach, although one has to say that that is a marvellous thing for people to be able to hear truth. But he did commission them in this particular way. Verse 8. 10 verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. I don't think they've given any less authority or breadth of works than Jesus himself has already demonstrated in the previous sections of the gospel. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So they're going up amongst these rebellious people. They're warned about the reaction. But they're going to heal the sick. They're going to raise the dead. They're going to cleanse those who have leprosy. They're going to drive out demons. These are the works of the Messiah. And they're commissioned to be able to, in this particular case, 
to have authority to do exactly that. I cannot think that Jesus just idly gave them that opportunity, as it were. But it was to be a very significant part of the mission that they uh, were undertaking. They were apostles, and they were given a special authority to do the things that Jesus, as the head of the apostles, was commissioning them to do. So that was also an essential ingredient of the mission. It should be evident that when Simon and Pete and his brother Andrew went out, they were involved in healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing those who have leprosy and driving out demons. And here's a thought, extraordinary, isn't it? Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot are also commissioned to do this. Amazing. And all is to be freely given. Freely you have received, freely give. What might that be about? The sort of a hint of, of what could be at stake here is, is that passage in Acts where we read of that guy who saw the, the miracles that were being undertaken, wanted to give money, wanted to pay that, that he might have that gift as well. Well, the Christian gospel has never been about money. And the moment it becomes about money, it's, it's lost an essential ingredient. Jesus was not paid to come to earth. He freely gave himself to a life on this earth and death upon a cross. It was never about money. It was never about status and authority. It was always about freeness, grace, lavishness without money or without price and when the Christian message gets infected by the idea that these things can be bought or valued and something really bad has happened it's never about that I'm thinking now what our standing orders are what can we learn from these, these few words which is true for us today? We can say Messiah is here. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is near. It was near when Jesus was upon earth. It is very, very near now that he is in heavenly places and has sent his Holy Spirit into this world. The kingdom of heaven was near geographically in those days wherever Jesus was and as he spreads it out a little bit further by his 12 apostles the kingdom of heaven is near throughout this whole world now by the giving of the Holy Spirit in such abundance that's a delightful thing for us to know isn't it wherever we go in this world the kingdom of heaven is near and it is a today message gospel is never about yesterday or tomorrow but it is about today 
there was an urgency in the message that was given to these 12, which is to say the kingdom of heaven is near, meaning there's something to be done. There's a response to be made, and the response needs to be done now. And that same sense of present urgency is exactly where we are and what we need to be about so that every day for us is a kingdom of heaven is near day and for us to live in a close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that we are ready and able to testify to him at every opportunity because the opportunities will come every day and we want to glorify him every day don't we want to see his kingdom extended every day so we we're not to wait till next year when it might be more convenient but today if we hear his voice that's the day whether you're at work at home on holiday it's today We are ambassadors given the king's message to proclaim. That's exactly how these twelve found themselves. Ambassadors to proclaim the message of Jesus. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We don't have any message of our own, do we? Nothing worthwhile we can bring to the peace. The only message which is worthwhile and the only message which is valid for us to bring is the message of the ambassador. The ambassador has got a written brief, hasn't he? He's got, a, got letters from the king. He's saying the king has said, I want you to say this. I want you to say this. So we have an unchanging message. And as was given to those 12, so is given to us. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. Paul was very clear about this, wasn't he? He never took ownership of the message as if it was somehow his message. Saying, well, Peter's had it in a certain way and this, this is my way. No, it's Christ's message. We bring Christ's message. Whoever is the speaker, it has to be Christ's message. And we judge the validity of that message on the basis of how it corresponds to the truth of God's word. Reliance on God. They were told to depend on God and we can surely say this about everything that we need to be about. Apart from me you can do nothing, says Jesus in John 15 verse 5. What a sobering thought that is. How much energy goes into 
to doing the best we can. But we know every preacher would verify this. We, we would do so much better if we could spend more time on our knees in prayer and pray for the felt sense of the Holy Spirit of God. Every congregation would do so well to be in such reliance on the Holy Spirit of God to understand and obey the message that is being delivered. It doesn't change. (laughs) We have to rely upon God. That dropped off the bottom of the page. It has dropped off the bottom of my page as well. Expect opposition from multiple quarters. We'll see that in the latter part of Matthew chapter 10. Extraordinary thought to us, isn't it, that people coming in the authority of Jesus Christ, the King, people coming, demonstrating the works of the Messiah, get such uh, rude treatment. Well, Jesus says expect it, expect it. It's going to happen. It's better for us to be expectant of it rather than taken by surprise. Even though it does take us by surprise and we are disappointed, especially when it comes from our own families, which is exactly what Jesus says later on. Families are divided by the gospel. And that's very disappointing and upsetting. But Jesus says you have to allow for this. This will happen. And what about the Jew? I've made the point that this is this is Jesus' final campaign of wooing and winning his his people, going going to the very end, going to the eleventh hour, as it were. And we know that he warned them that there would come a time of terrible reckoning. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD seventy was a mark and a symbol. Destruction of all the old order of things. Is this still a place for the Jew at all? Well, I think we should listen very carefully to the Apostle Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And you know that though he was called to be a, a light for the Gentiles, he was also very careful to recognize that when he went into any situation, he should bring that gospel first to the Jewish people. Go into the synagogue first and uh, try to exploit that opportunity to the best. As and when the door closes, then he can move on to the Gentiles. And of course he had a very rich ministry amongst the Gentiles, but he also had a good ministry amongst the Jews. There were, people, there were Jewish people who were converted under the Apostle Paul. And I think we need to take very seriously, um, because some people might say yes, but he actually lived before AD 70, so maybe this was just the dregs of the last embers of the covenant people. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God loves the Jewish people. God loves the Jewish people. 
Do you realise that? Or do you just lump them together with everyone else? I don't think God does that even now. He does make a distinction. And and, um, Romans 12 helps us in this. Romans 11, isn't it? Thank you very much. The remnant of Israel is this passage. It's worth not skipping over. Romans 11 verse 25 says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. He's talking essentially to Gentile believers now. Israel, Jewish people, has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. As far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their, that's the Jewish people's disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. There's an extremely powerful logic and chronology about this. It runs something like this. Initially the gospel had come to God's people. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They failed miserably in that respect. And indeed they failed in terms of their allegiance to their own covenant God as we see as we have seen they were exiled they come back to their land but they still fail and so they come into a place where there's almost a hardening of their hearts it's part of God's judgment isn't it and then To their great surprise and resentment almost. God's blessings are now spread upon these heathen nations, which is us. The Jews who were so proud of the temple system, the law they'd been given, the arrangements that they'd been offered by God, that was theirs. That was their privilege. They squandered all that. And now they see the rest of the world enjoying these blessings. Paul indicates in other places, that's going to make them jealous. Going to make them jealous. Their hearts are hard. But 
But God still loves them. And he still has a, has a saving purpose for the Jewish people. Please don't think in terms of land, nationalism, Zionism, any of that. Please do think of God's attitude towards the hearts of Jewish people. There is an expectation given prophetically throughout the Bible and is spelled out in this particular passage, which is that there will be an ingathering of Jewish people. Therefore, it is right for us, it is right for us to actually have concern for Jewish people. And if we don't find them readily on our doorstep in the way that Paul did, then even as a church, we, we should be concerned to know about the work of Jewish mission, to see how that goes, to pray for that as well. Well, they are a scattered people, and they're actually Jews in every community as well. And uh, wouldn't it be lovely to see Jewish people coming into the church here, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being converted? What a domino effect that might have. And it's also indicated that when there is that ingathering of the Jewish people, there will be a, almost a reviving of God's work amongst the Gentiles as well. There's something extraordinary, explosive, overwhelming, that causes Paul to say at the end of all this, for God has bound all men over dis- disobedience, initially the Gentiles, then the Jews. so that he may have mercy on them all. He will have a wonderful way of displaying his mercy. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. What a wonderful gospel. How appropriate it is for every kind of person. There's no one that God has written off. Despite their bad behaviour, no one is excluded. Today, if you hear his voice, turn to him in repentance and faith. That's the message, that's the hope, and the reality is that if you turn to the Lord, he will become the Lord and Saviour of you. Let's have our closing song and then we can go into our prayer groups.